My name is Brian Fan, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship. And uh, today I have the privilege of introducing to you Dr. James Hamilton. He's a professor of biblical theology at Southern Seminary. He's an author, he's a father, he's a husband, and uh, he's also a preaching pastor. You can see a little bit more in the notes section in your bulletin. But as I was sharing in the first service today, I work also for a home builder, and I train sales counselors who are on the front line meeting the public. And one of the things that, uh, that you deal with uh, is this whole thing called equal housing. Equal housing does not allow salespeople to talk with the public or raise issues of race, color, religion, and stuff like that. And furthermore, we're told, whatever you do, it's not going to be to your benefit to get into politics. So you were probably raised that there's two things you don't talk about with strangers. What? Religion and what? And guess what our brother's going to come and talk to us about today. So, Dr. Hamilton, uh, we're glad you're here. Grace Church, join me in welcoming Dr. James Hamilton. Thanks, brother. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to be citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that we would be marked by love, that we would be those who love like Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom from your word that we might know how best to engage this culture, how best to live in this day, at this time, in this place, as those who follow Jesus. So, Lord, we ask that you'd help us. We pray that you would make us wise as serpents and gentle as doves. And we pray that your word would transform us into the image of the Lord Jesus himself as we look into your word for our good, for your glory, for the good of wives and husbands and children and our society. Lord, we pray that you would bless us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to ask me who I, if, I were, if, if you were to say to me something like this, imagine the least likely person that you would expect to be converted. I might begin to construct a composite that would look something like this. Give me an English professor in a university in the north. I mean, pick any university, but let's just say Syracuse University. And not only is this person in the English department, the reason I say that, I was an English major and the professors that I had were among the most liberal people on campus. My classmates in English classes were among the most liberal people on campus. And we can, we can go one further and we can say, this is not only an English person, an English professor, this is also an English professor who, who also teaches women's studies. So you're probably aware that women's studies is one, another one of the most liberal places on campus. They're, they're likely to be feminists there. Uh, and let, let's just keep going a little bit further. Let's say that this is a person who's committed in a same-sex relationship and maybe even has married her partner. So a female women's studies slash English professor living with her same-sex par- partner in what she regarded as a marriage. And, and probably you can just dump in there every a liberal view that you can expect and all of the anti-Christian attitudes that, that go along with all of that. 
That, that's a likely composite portrait of someone that I might identify as the least likely convert that, that I can imagine. Maybe you've heard of this lady named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. That's who she was. She was teaching at Syracuse University. She was uh, teaching English and women's studies. She was writing on these issues. She's, she's published. You can find her on Amazon, having published on these issues in academic forums. She uh, was in a committed same-sex relationship with her partner. And today, about a decade or, or more later, she is married to a reform pastor. She is the mother of children whom she homeschools and teaches in classical conversations. That is a radical transformation. It didn't come about because of an election. It didn't come about because of a political speech. It didn't come about because of a conversation about the issues. Do you know how how it happened? It happened because a pastor read something that she wrote in the local paper and responded to it, wrote her a letter in response and invited her over to his home. And then this pastor had this lady into his home and began to share meals with this lady and began to communicate genuine concern and love and interest in this woman. And, and gradually, as their relationship grew, she granted him the opportunity to explain the Bible to her. And as she came to understand the Bible, she describes her conversion as a train wreck. And, and you can imagine, she's a tenured professor teaching all of these radically left and liberal ideas, and her whole world is being reshaped by the Scriptures. I point to her because what, what I want to contend today is the way that we need to address the political issues in our day, the best way for the church to address the political issues that we face in our culture today is not by the church entering directly into politics, but rather by the church being the church. In order for the church today, in order for us as a body of Christ to address the political situation in our day, what we must do is be Christian, be what Jesus has called us to be. So David Wells describes this problem. It's, it's, it's really a, a remarkable problem in our society. And, and I think as I read to you this quote from David Wells, it's going to, to resonate with you. You're going you're gonna to understand this. David Wells writes, the vast growth in evangelically minded people in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s should by now have revolutionized American culture. What he means is that, you know, you look at these surveys, all these people claim to believe in God. All these people claim to to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Wells says, with a third of American adults now claiming to have experienced spiritual rebirth, one-third of American adults, a powerful countercurrent of morality growing out of a powerful and alternative worldview should have been unleashed in factories, offices, and boardrooms, in the media, universities, and professors from one end of the country to the other. The results should by now be unmistakable. Secular values should be reeling, and those who are their proponents should be very troubled. But as it turns out, all of this swelling of the evangelical ranks has passed unnoticed in the culture. More than unnoticed, 
I would say that today the, thing, the situation has changed and we are being actively advocated against. Let me just add right here before... That's the problem. The problem is we've got all these people that claim to believe something, claim to be moral, claim to be Christian perhaps, and, and then there's this disconnect from, from that to we now live in a country where several states have legalized marijuana. That's not good for people. It's not good for, I don't care what they say about the studies, it's not good for children to grow up in a place where it's legal to smoke marijuana. We live in a country where it is now increasingly legal for people of the same sex to marry one another. That's not good for people. If you believe the Bible, the Bible says that God made man male and female. And if you follow Jesus, Jesus in Matthew 19 responding to a question about Divorce and remarriage. He first quotes Genesis 1.27. In the beginning, uh, the, crea- the, the one who made them male and female. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. Said, uh, the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus puts male and female together as one flesh. So according to the scriptures, according to the Lord Jesus, marriage is between one man and one woman. And if you look at the data, you look at life experience... The best thing for children, the best thing for society, is for children to grow up with a mom and a dad. So I trust that many of you are like me. You're not, you're not angry uh, political uh, uh, gurus or something like that. You're, you're, not, you're, not, you're not just getting uh, your, your, your temper up from listening to Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity. You're people who care about people. You love people. You want humans to flourish. You don't want the society to be filled with people who can't think straight or can't be disciplined because they're potheads. You don't want the, the, our, our culture to have rank upon rank of generations that grow up without a dad in their lives. And, and you, don't, you don't want millions of unborn children to be killed by their mothers, which is a horrible thing for that child whose life has been e- ended and it's a horrible thing for the women who think that this is a solution and and they're going to deal with this this fallout for the rest of their lives as that date of that anniversary rolls around and they think about how old that child would have been you love people you want people to flourish and so you care about these issues and if you care about these issues you're going to be interested in the solution that I'm going to propose to you that the church has This is not to say, this solution is not guaranteeing that abortion is going to become illegal, that a constitutional amendment saying that marriage is between one man and one woman is going to be passed. That's probably not going to happen. As we look at the Bible, the Bible indicates things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. The the passages in Daniel and 1 Thessalonians and the book of Revelation indicate that Christians are going to face increasing persecution as the end draws near. So it's this weird anomaly how good people, and, and Christians are, I would argue, good people, loving people, um, righteous people, come to be viewed as wicked people, and then they come to be punished. It's, it's, it's a strange paradox But the Bible indicates that's what's going to happen as we draw closer and closer to the return of Jesus. The solution I'm proposing is how individual hearts can have their their worldviews transformed so that they go from what Rosaria Champagne Butterfield was to what she is. 
And, and the issue here is if we get these things right, everything else is going to fall into place. So here are my, here are my two concerns. These are the two points of this sermon that I'm going to propose to you are what we ought to be concerned about. We ought to be concerned to see people born again. We ought to be, we ought to be concerned to be, see people regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we ought to be concerned as churches, not with the purity of the outside world, but with the purity of the church. And, and the way that we pursue that is by church discipline. Um, so, so basically there are two points to this sermon. Regeneration, or the new birth, and then church discipline. So let's look at each of these in turn. I'd like for you to turn with me to John chapter 3, where there's this very interesting conversation between Jesus and an important political figure of his day. Remarkably instructive what happens here between Jesus and Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 1 and following. John writes, now there was a man of the Pharisees. And if you've, if you've been reading the Bible, you know who the Pharisees are. They, they didn't uh, respond to Jesus with great warmth and enthusiasm. These are, the, these are the guys that didn't appreciate what Jesus was doing. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Not only is Nicodemus a Pharisee, he's a ruler of the Jews. This likely means he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the highest political body in Israel in the day. Stop for a minute and and imagine what you would expect Jesus to say to an important political figure of his day. There were no doubt many political issues that he had opinions about. There were no doubt many political issues that that the Jews of Jesus' day were very concerned with. For one thing, they, they were occupied by Rome. Jesus, what do you think we should do about these Romans. Jesus, do you have opinions about how Israel ought to relate to the Romans? You know, there were some, there were some Jews who thought they should cozy up to Rome and thereby they could be enriched and they could be uh, given more and more influence and they could, they could pursue what they thought was right by virtue of their alliance with Rome. There were other Jews who thought, no, we don't need to have any relations with Rome. We need to... to build an army and drive those dirty, filthy Romans out of our land, out of the Holy Land. So there's all kinds of issues that are going to pertain to, to uh, economics, to war, and, and to public morality, how we relate to Rome. Jesus is apparently not immediately concerned with any of those issues. It's not to say that they don't matter, but it's, it reminds me, really, of, of the, the stance that Abraham Lincoln took when he said things like, you know, both of these warring factions, the North and the South, they pray to the same God, they read the same Bible, they, they believe m- many of the same things, and the Almighty has his own purposes. The, the Almighty is about his own plan. So this man, Nicodemus, John 3, 2, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi. Now, that's, that's a, a striking form of address. Rabbi means teacher. Nicodemus is, is going to be referred to down in John 3.10. Jesus is going to say, are you the teacher of Israel? Nic- this indicates that Nicodemus is perhaps the most respected teacher in Israel. And that guy is addressing Jesus as rabbi. 
Jesus didn't grow up like Paul. Paul went down to Jerusalem probably when he was 12 years old and sat at the feet of Gamaliel and was instructed and, and learned. Paul had an Ivy League education, you know, by our standards. Paul, Paul was the kind of guy that if, if Harvard was going to invite somebody to lecture, they would invite somebody like Paul. Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter who had gathered around himself some fishermen, a tax collector, some, some no-counts. And this guy, Nicodemus, comes and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. There is an authenticity about Jesus that has nothing to do with secular credentials. We want to be followers of Jesus. We want to see the way that he's responded to, to see what kind of person he was. And we want to say, that's who I want to be. We, we want to follow Jesus and be transformed into his image. I didn't go to Harvard. I don't have any Ivy League credentials. And I don't care about that stuff. I want people to look at me and say what they said about the apostles. This person has been with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we want them to say that, not you sound like Rush Limbaugh. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You know, there's remarkable truth in the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit has, has descended upon Jesus, John 1, to remain upon him. So it is very true that God is with Jesus. And this guy, Nicodemus, that Jesus is going to tell, basically, you need to be born again. Jesus is essentially declaring to Nicodemus, you are unregenerate. But he can tell, God is with you. Jesus, over in John chapter 20, is going to breathe on his disciples and say, receive the Holy Spirit. As people who follow Jesus, as people who believe in Jesus, Jesus has imparted his spirit to us. And if, if you're, a, bab, if you're a, a baptized believer in Jesus and you're in good standing with your local church, I believe the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within you and that you are a temple, as Paul says, of the Holy Spirit. Is that evident in your life? This is what we want to pursue. We want to pursue even unregenerate people looking at us and saying, it's evident that God is with you by the way that you conduct yourself. No one can do these signs. Jesus has already in, in the Gospel of John, he's turned water into wine. I'm not suggesting you're going to be able to do that. But it's going to be evident that God is with you. Jesus has turned water into wine. Nicodemus has gotten word of that probably down in Jerusalem. And he knows nobody could do this unless God is with him. Now think of all the, the things that might be implied by these statements. And, and Jesus almost changes the subject on Nicodemus. But, but he doesn't change the subject, I don't think. And we'll see how. Look at what Jesus says to him in John 3.3. 3. It, it's, it's almost as though Nicodemus is saying to Jesus, would you tell me more? We, we can tell that God is with you, but you're not really what we expect. And Jesus says to him in John 3.3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I want to start with that last phrase, the kingdom of God. 
Because this is what would have resonated with Nicodemus. This is what Nicodemus was interested in. Anybody that believed the Old Testament, they're interested in the kingdom of God. They're interested in God's king from the line of David reigning in Jerusalem on the throne. They're interested in uh, the people of Israel being purified. They're interested in the unclean Romans who have occupied Israel being driven out. They're interested in Psalm 2 being realized where, where God says to, to David, to David's son, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and you will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces with a potter's vessel. You're going to conquer all the lands. You're going to submit them all to the, the reign and the rule of Yahweh and the kingdom of God will be everywhere and the dry lands will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. That's what they want. That's what Nicodemus is looking for. And Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we've talked for a minute about the kingdom of God. Let's consider this, he cannot see. He cannot see. Close your eyes, you can't see. There's an inability to see if your eyes are closed. Jesus is saying, unless one is born again, you could translate this phrase, he is not able to see. The kingdom of God. Now, in the, in the context of the Gospel of John, Jesus is coming in an entirely unexpected way. In all the Gospels, it works this way. Everyone, even the disciples, it seems, expected the Messiah to come and be a conquering Messiah. This is why when Jesus says to the, to the, the boys there, uh, the, the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem, and he's going to be handed over, and he's going to be crucified, and on the third day he'll rise. Peter's response, this will never happen to you, Lord. It's not what they expect. Jesus is saying, unless you're born again, you are not able to see how who I am and what I am doing is actually bringing about the kingdom of God. I think think the disciples are gradually experiencing this, this new birth to... With the result that in John 6, when Jesus says some offensive things to a crowd, Jesus looks at at, at the disciples and he says, do you want to go away also? And they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal. We don't understand what you're saying, but we can tell that you're the only one with what you've got. You have the words of eternal life. We've got nowhere else to go. And, And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is an inability to perceive what God is doing in Jesus. An inability to perceive what God is doing in Jesus. I'd like for you to think for just a moment with me about the the plight of an unregenerate person. Someone who hasn't experienced the new birth. This doesn't mean they're unintelligent. It doesn't mean that they haven't thought through their positions. I think sometimes we Christians... We don't do justice to unbelieving people. And we think, oh, well, you just haven't thought about this. If, you've, if you would have thought about this, then you would come to the position that I hold. Or, or perhaps we say, well, you just don't have any values. Now, the problem is that unbelieving people do have values. They're just not our values. In fact, uh, a man named Rod Dreher, you may be familiar with him, he, writes a, 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 he has a website entitled... Um, the, the American conservative, he recently put up a blog post that was entitled, Why Liberals Can't Understand Conservatives. And he's relying on the work of a non-Christian 
secular social scientist. And that non-Christian secular social scientist said that the typical person who identifies as a liberal has two values. Number one, don't harm anybody. Number two, don't take away anybody's freedom. The conservative shares those values. Don't harm anybody. Don't take away anybody's freedom. But the conservative has some other values also, like respect life. And, and, And this would impinge upon the unborn. And the conservative also is going to value sexual purity. And and that's not necessarily uh, agreed upon by the liberal. And then the conservative is also going to be concerned with what this secular social scientist called group identity, which I would translate into, into our realm as a concern for what the Bible says, what the historic Christian faith and, and church has taught and believed. So, so group identity, tradition, you know, and, and what we've always believed. Well, these concerns, these values are not shared by unbelieving people. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says that those who are dead in trespasses and sins, they follow the course of this world and they follow the ruler of this world and they follow the desires of the body and of the mind. They do what they want to do. They make real choices, but they're dead. They're dead in sin And as a result, they're doing what their body wants to do or what their mind tells them is right. And then Paul describes how God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive. This is so important for us to grasp. We should not ever communicate or conduct ourselves with self-righteousness toward the unregenerate. We should not talk as though we expect them to think or act as anything other than unregenerate people who are dead in trespasses and sins. Their, Their sins should not surprise us. We should remember that we too were dead in trespasses and sins. We all were, and we were made alive. This is what Jesus is talking about here when he says, unless one is born Again, the being made alive that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2.5 is the same thing that Jesus is describing here with Nicodemus. Being born again. Nicodemus is an unregenerate person. He doesn't understand what Paul is talking about. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus thinks that Jesus is talking about physical birth. Jesus is talking about spiritual rebirth. So Jesus answered him in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter or he is not able to enter the kingdom of God. I want you to think for a moment about inability. Um, We can understand inability because we can look at people like LeBron James and we can say, I don't have the ability that he has. I could master his footwork. I could go through his training ritual, and it would not give me his size. It would not give me his strength. It would not give me his speed, his agility, his jumping ability. It wouldn't give me his touch. I'm not going to become LeBron James. I do not have the ability to do that. So what Jesus says to Nicodemus here indicates that the new birth gives you an ability a new 
ability. What ability is that? Look at verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're born again, you have a new perceptive capacity. People who are not born again, they see Jesus. And they hear him saying things that don't make sense to them. And they go away from him. John 6. As a result of his teaching, many left and no longer followed him. People who are born again, even if they don't understand what Jesus says, even if the culture rejects what Jesus says, for them, whatever he says is right. It's like what we say. He's Lord. Whatever you say, we'll do. Wherever you say to go, we'll go. Whatever, whatever you say is right, that's what's right. Because you've caused this change to happen in our hearts, and we now perceive that there is nothing better than you, Jesus. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more worthy. The, the sun, in all its fullness of brightness, is a shadow to the glory of Christ. The purity of the, of the snow on one of those days when it's just fallen and it's so clean and white and the sun shines on it and it looks like a field of diamonds, that purity is filthy to the purity of the Lord Jesus. He is more worthy of worship than anything else that we have ever perceived and there's nothing more convincing or more compelling in our experience than Jesus because we have been enabled to perceive him as he is. The new birth has happened. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Implication, if you're born again, you are able to see the kingdom of God. And then look at verse 5. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This means that unless the Spirit makes you alive, unless you're given this new life, this regenerating new birth, unless that happens to you, you will not enter God's kingdom. So there's a perceptive ability, and then there's a right to enter that comes from the new birth. This is of far more concern to us than the outcome of elections. We are here. We are commissioned by the Lord Jesus to make disciples. And in order to see this happen in people's lives, we must indiscriminately proclaim the gospel. Don't look at the Rosaria champagnes of the world and think, she's not going to believe the gospel so I'm not going to reach out to her. Don't look at the Apostle Pauls of the world, the people that are actively advocating against Christianity, and think he's not going to believe the gospel, so I'm not going to proclaim it to him. Don't look at your coworker who's addicted to porn and marijuana or whatever and think he's not going to believe the gospel. Indiscriminately proclaim it. Proclaim the gospel because Jesus says that his words, John 6, 63, are spirit and life. And Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And when people hear the, hear the gospel and the spirit gives them the new birth, regenerates them, makes them alive, they can see Jesus and they believe. There's nothing more compelling to them. Regeneration, one heart by one heart, begins to have their lives transformed. And, and there's an old Baptist catechism that says, it says, what is regeneration? And the answer is, regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit by which the heart is renewed so that it turns from the love of sin to the love of holiness. All of a sudden, people that, that love marijuana, that love immoral activities that love 
their own lives so much that they're willing to kill their own children. They turn from the love of sin to the love of holiness. They love God. And, and, and from enmity and disobedience to the love and service of God. If somebody believes the gospel, all their political world is going to be reshaped. Even their approach to political questions is going to be reformulated. Second uh, solution is church discipline. There's a a remarkable change that took place in the church in the United States of America. This this is documented in in my colleague Greg Wills' book. It's entitled Democratic Religion. And what he shows is that after the Civil War, the churches in this country went from seeking pure churches to seeking a pure society. That resulted in things like the temperance movement and, and other forms to, to make the, the, the civilization moral instead of trying to make the church Christ-like. That's a, that's a wrong focus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul's main concern is with believers. And this is where these two things, regeneration and church discipline, are, are going to, to have political teeth. I'm, I'm going to give you an illustration. In my home state of Arkansas, there is a senator who, um, he's pro-gay marriage, he's um, pro-abortion, which means that he thinks it's legal and right for a mother to take the life of her unborn child. I would argue that um, God gives life, only God should be allowed to take life. We, we don't have that authority. I think that most of you would probably agree with me that that's wrong. And, and if you're a Christian, you ought to um, engage in whatever you're called to do. If you're called to be a politician, you ought to be a Christian politician. If you're called to be a, a carpenter, you ought to do things with integrity and faithfulness. So if you're going to claim to be a Christian, and so many of our politicians claim to be Christians, don't they? Even, even a politician who's going to evolve on gay marriage, he's going to say that his faith led him to that position. And he's going to claim, our president claimed, that his Christian faith is what led him to support gay marriage. Well, how, does, how, do, how do these things touch on these issues? Well, I think that the churches, the churches... Uh, where these people claim to be members, where these politicians claim to be members, have a responsibility to say to these people, the Bible is very clear on issues of life and morality. And if you take a stance or you begin to vote or your voting record reflects that your stance on these things is against the Bible's teaching, what we're going to do is obey Matthew 18. We're going to come to you and we're going to call you to repentance as an individual. I think the I think the pastor of this, this politician in Arkansas who's running for the Senate has a responsibility to go to him and say, Mark Pryor, your voting record is something that you, if you're going to continue to claim to be a Christian and if you're going to continue as a member of our church, we are calling you to repentance on these two matters, marriage and abortion. We're calling you to repentance on those issues. If he repents, praise God. Praise God. He needs to now follow Jesus. If he refuses to listen, we need to follow what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Take one or two others, go to him again, call him to repentance. If he repents, if he listens, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, you tell it to the church. Telling it to the church means, it it doesn't mean you're airing somebody's dirty laundry. It doesn't mean you're you're spreading rumors or something like this. It means you're saying to a, a group of people who have entered into a solemn covenant with one another to say, this is what we believe the Bible teaches. 
This is what we believe we're called to do and be. This is how we're, we believe we're called to live in accordance with the scriptures. And I want everybody here to, to hold me to this standard. So that if I, if I stray off into sin, I want you people to reach out and pull me back and say, come back to Jesus. Come back to us. I need that. And so the, the telling it to the church part means that we say to one another, our brother is straying from the truth. And we all now, in ways that are appropriate to our relationship to this brother, in, in ways that are appropriate to our church, in ways that are responsible before the Lord, we all now need to reach out to this brother and, and try to woo him back to Jesus, try to woo him back to the Bible's teaching. And then Jesus says, if he will not hear the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And you know from Matthew's gospel, Jesus said things like, if you love only those who love you, don't even the Gentiles do that? So that's clearly people that aren't identifying as followers of Jesus. Jesus is saying, you treat that person like they need to be born again. That doesn't mean you, you don't let them come to church. It does mean they don't enjoy the, the privileges and responsibilities of church membership. It, it does mean you're essentially saying to that person, we think that you need to repent of your sin and believe the gospel because I know you claim to be a Christian, but everything you say and do is contrary to the Bible's teaching. So you need to repent and believe. There's far more at stake here than the political process in the United States of America. Do you know what's at stake here in, in Mark Pryor's life and in Barack Obama's life? Do you know what's at stake for these men who claim to be Christians and then they do things that are directly contrary to the Bible's teaching? Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23 is what's at stake in their lives. This is why Paul says pray for kings and all who are in high, high positions. In, in, Matthew, uh, in Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus speaks what I think are the scariest words in the Bible. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And the will of the Father in heaven is communicated in the scriptures. And, and on issues of life and morality, we, 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 can't, we can't open the door to, well, there are different opinions about how this can be interpreted. No, it's, it's really clear. It's really clear what the Bible says God created marriage to be. It's, it's really clear that God has said, thou shalt not kill. Those are really clear issues. We don't have to have debates about we can We can debate economic policy. We can have different ideas about those things, I think. But issues of life and marriage, I think these are foundational. God put marriage in the garden prior to the fall. He created one man and one woman. This is, this is crystal clear. Verse 22, on that day, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not my faith lead you to my political views? Uh, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We don't want anybody to hear those words. We don't want anybody to hear those words. So we must call people to repentance. We must indiscriminately proclaim 
the gospel. I started with Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, who had an attraction to members of the same sex. I'm going to end with a man named Matthew Vines. It's a young man who, um, you know, I think the, the more that we're exposed to this, the more we learn about this. Matthew Vines is not a person who was abused as a youngster. He's not a, not a person who was uh, mistreated in any way. He grew up in a believing household. His, he grew up his parents taking him to church. And then he went off to college, and, and he describes him, uh, himself allowing himself to acknowledge the fact that he was attracted to other males rather than to females. So he, it's clear from his testimony he didn't want to be someone who said, I'm actually gay. He didn't want that. But he didn't go Rosaria Champagne Butterfield's way. And he didn't go the way that Sam Albury, who's a pastor in England, went. And he didn't go the way that uh, Wesley Hill, who's written on these issues, went. These are people who said, the Bible is clear about, about human sexuality. And the Bible is clear that the only appropriate place in which human sexuality is to be expressed is within the context of a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. That's the only place where my desires can be uh, gratified in a way that pleases God. If, I des- if I'm a heterosexual and I, de- I desire more women, that's, that's immoral. That's, that's not allowed. If I'm, if I'm attracted to people of the same sex and I don't desire women at all, that's immoral. The Bible doesn't allow that. And if I don't desire people of the opposite sex and I can't get married for that reason, then I'm, I'm called to remain celibate. That's the way that Sam Alberry and Wesley Hill have gone, and they're praying that the Lord would change their desires. It's a broken world. People desire bad things. We, we all experience that. Matthew Vines decided that what he was going to do was, was come up with a biblical argument to justify a committed same-sex partnership that was like marriage. He wanted to take Christian morality and apply it to uh, a same-sex relationship. So he wrote this book called God and the Gay Christian, which is an attempt to justify uh, a same-sex relationship that, that is like a marriage. And he's claiming to be an evangelical. He's claiming to be a person who holds a high view of Scripture. He wanted to present his argument at his church. And praise God, that church said, you may not do that here. We will not allow you to advocate this false teaching in the body of Christ. You can't teach that here. And, and I don't know all the details. I don't know if the church, I hope that the church, I don't know what happened. I hope that they, the pastors, called him to repentance. And then eventually, when he refused to repent, and he has refused to repent, I hope that they eventually actually practiced church discipline upon him. That is, actively removed him from membership. What I know to be the case is that he left that church. And he went to, I'm not going to refer to it as a church, he went to a body of people claiming to be Christians, and he joined with them, and they allowed him to, to present this, this false teaching. We've got to be faithful. What's at stake here is the Lord Jesus himself not spewing us out of his mouth. What's at stake here is the Lord Jesus not coming to us and saying, if you don't repent, I am going to take your lampstand away. That's what's at stake here. We've got to be faithful. I think that what Matthew Vines needs is to be born again. 
If, if he repents and comes back to the teaching of the Bible, maybe he was already born again. Either way, he'll now be conducting himself in accordance with the Scriptures. The church has to hold the line on these issues. We are called to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. And there is great reward. There is great reward. The, the book of Revelation is clear. It, you know, the, 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 those churches that John addresses in Revelation 2 and 3, they're so much like us. They, they're living in this Greco-Roman world. There's this overwhelming Roman empire that has a very different set of standards for morality and conduct than what the Bible teaches. Those churches are small, relatively speaking. This is a big church, but in the face of the wider culture, we're small. And, and, and they seem to lack any influence. They seem to lack all power. And Jesus makes these promises to those who overcome. And you look around today, and the Roman Empire is long gone. And the church of the Lord Jesus stands. And when the dead are raised, those who were faithful to Jesus, they're not going to hear the words, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, they're going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father, keep us from the temptation of placing our hopes in politics. Keep us, Lord, from the temptation of thinking that your kingdom is going to come through the government of the United States of America. And Lord, keep us from the temptation of compromising what the Bible teaches so that we can gain influence in the current political climate. Lord, make us faithful to the Scriptures. Make us faithful to You. Make us those that people look at and they say, it's obvious that God is with you. It's obvious that you've walked with Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to proclaim the gospel often. And God, we pray that your spirit would regenerate hearts so that one by one our contemporaries would become people who recognize what's good for others and who love other people and who care about them flourishing. Father, I pray that you would bless this church and bless its pastor. Cause this to be a lighthouse. Cause this to be a magnet. Cause people to come here because they want to know why the people of this church are so loving, where, where they get this hope, and, and what it is that drives their Christ-like behavior. Lord, we ask that you would do more than we can imagine. We pray that more people would be saved than we even begin to expect. And we pray, Lord, that on the last day, when we stand before you, we would be able to look at the Lord Jesus and worship him. We are amazed that the Bible tells us that we will see him face to face. That's what we want. We pray that you would help us to walk with him until the day, until it comes. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.